for those of you who've been around, you know that uh, we've been doing a series called Text where we are talking about the Bible, the story of the Bible, so that we can understand the stories that are in the Bible that much better. We started in January, and today is the last episode, the final hurrah, you're here for it, part seven. So you don't need to know everything from the other parts to be here for today, but hey, go back in time, check out the episodes that have come before this, and I'll help paint a picture for you. So um, I wanted to show you, this is my first Bible. It is genuine, authentic, artificial red leather. It has red page edges, and inside there are even illustrations. So if you want to know what some of these original Bible characters looked like, I've got the information for you right here. This is my first Bible. Um, Then there's this one. This is my study Bible, also known by Super Christian Bible. This is the one that I have used most to study. It is filled with my notes, my highlights. This is what I went to Bible school with. It has a handle on the outside, which makes it also good for Bible thumping, which is something that we should all not be good at. Maybe some of you use your Bible in the same way. I also store other papers in here. Does anyone else have stuff in your Bible, like it's a filing cabinet? Mine's not too much of a filing cabinet. But there we go. And then, ah, yes, this is my travel Bible. This is the Bible that I got when I was at camp. I had to memorize enough verses and then say them in front of people so that I could earn my Bible. This is my travel Bible. It is now being held together by a combination of electrical tape, hockey tape, and packing tape. All of these things, putting it together enough so that I can continue to travel with it and we have memory memories together. We have many memories together, this Bible and I. So I guess you could say that this one was actually free um, because it didn't cost me anything, which is sort of like the Gideon Bibles. Many of you may have received one of those small red New Testament Psalms and Proverbs, a Gideon Bible, and they gave it away for free, Um, but it's I mean, it's obviously, it's not free. If these are, in fact, the words of God, then they're priceless. They're they're life-changing. They make all the difference in the world, even though they didn't cost us something. But on these pages, these pages right here, I mean, this stuff, is this God's word? Or is this just the opinions of men? That's a pretty important question. And I believe that That inside these pages contain the truth of our living God. And today I want to tell you why it is reliable. But if all of these things are true, then it would require that we would know what is inside the Bible. So before we go any farther, I want to start by learning what's in the entire Bible. So here we go for a very quick Bible summary. One, two, three. Bible in a minute. Earth made Adam Eve. Cain kills Abel, has to leave. Boring genealogy. Great flood. Olive leaf. 
Tower of Babel, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Ten Commands, Promised Land, Judges, David, Solomon, sent away to Babylon, Job, then a bunch of songs, Proverbs, and the Song of Songs, Major Prophets, Lion Den, Minor Prophets, Bethlehem, Golden Myrrh, and Frankincense, Satan, and Samaritan, Choose Disciples of the Cheek, Walk on Water, Thousand Feet, Lazarus, Fig Tree, Last Supper, Gethsemane, Blood, Money, Third to Now, Pontius Pilate, Public Trial, Forty Lashes to the Tree, Why Have You Forsaken Me? Third Day, Empty Tomb, Reappears, Five Boots, Acts of G, Apostles, Jack, Epistles, and Apocalypse. Whoa! I hope that was helpful. Now you do know everything that's in the Bible. Um, we're going to move on to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, the man or the woman of God, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible says of itself that it is God breathed. That the, the word God breathed comes from a Greek word theonostis, and it means divinely breathed. Uh, it means the inspiration of God. So, theo, the first part of the word, is where we get the word like theology. Ology is study of, theo is God, study of God. Theonostis. So, new is part of pneuma, which is the word spirit. All scripture is God breathed. It is useful for correcting, for training, for rebuking. God will give you everything that you need to fulfill that every, everything that God has called you to do. But our question is, is it God's word? I, I believe that God has, has given us this. We call it special revelation to equip, to teach, to train us in righteousness. God gave us the scriptures to point to Jesus and to reveal himself, to prepare us, to equip us, to train us, to live out the mission that he gave us. So the Bible's been around for a long time, and it's surrounded by all sorts of fun and interesting facts. I just want to tell you a couple of those facts. Number one, the Bible is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Yay. Fact number two, the Bible is also the most shoplifted book in the world. Truthfully, if we're going to talk about it, it's not just one book, right? It's actually 66 different ancient historical manuscripts that we generally refer to as books, and then it's all wrapped together up into one handy volume. The Bible, it's 66 books, contains 773,692 words. It would take the average person about 70 hours to read the book out loud. The Bible's been written by all sorts of different people, written by politicians, statesmen, farmers, Shepherds, peasants, musicians, poets, and even a tax collector. The Bible is also written in a bunch of different places. Um, parts of it were written by Moses in the wilderness, by Jeremiah in a dungeon, uh, by Luke while he was traveling, Paul when he was in prison, and it was written by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos when he was in exile. These ancient documents were written in 13 different countries on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and can you guess the third one? Africa. Yeah. So that's a huge blow to those of us in North American society. None of it was written in North America. None of it was written in English. 
But it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And even though the documents, uh, the different documents that make up the Bible are written by a large number of different people from, from all different walks of life and over a span of 1,500 years, it has amazing consistency and accuracy when it comes to the message about the character and the nature of God and His redemptive plan for humanity. The Bible is the Word of God. Not only is it consistent, true, and inspired, but it speaks to so many different topics that we could use help from. So topics include marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery, sex, lust, greed, guilt, materialism, generosity, healing, hope, forgiveness, parenting, prayer, friendship, pride, obedience, heaven, hell, lying, murder, suicide, rape, fears, doubt, miracles, love, hate, money, criticism, creation, government, submission, rebellion, peace, leadership, Comparisons, joy, discontentment, sacrifice, delayed gratification, patience, faithfulness, enjoying life, self-control, disasters, injustices, demons, angels, discipleship, disciplines, fasting, honor, mercy, caring for the poor, handling wealth, family, and even cats. Well, not really cats. But the Bible does talk about the devil, so same kind of thing. You know, like devil wanders looking for... Yeah. What about the reliability of the Bible, right? Is the Bible trustworthy, true, and accurate? Or is it just the opinions of a bunch of different people? Well, to help us with that, in 1952, there was a historian named Steve Sanders who came up with three specific tests to put, to, uh, to evaluate the authenticity... <laughs> authenticity of historical writing. So let's put the Bible to the test, uh, these three tests. The first one is known as the internal test. What's the internal test? Re regarding the Bible, the internal test is to answer the question, do the writers in the Bible claim that their writings are true? What, what do they think? So basically, do the documents, who, the people who wrote the documents, do they say, yeah, it's just a story. It was a good story though, right? But I made it up. Like, it was just to tell you a tale. Or no, I was there. This is my experience. This is my life. This is accurate. So to help us with that, I want to check out 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Peter's saying, We did not follow cleverly invented stories about uh, when we told you about the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, I was there. This is my life. I saw it. This is what I experienced. I was there firsthand. Peter's saying, what I'm telling you is absolutely true. Now, when was the New Testament written? Written between about the year 45, 95. It's, you know, there's a little bit of ish in there. So there were plenty of first-generation believers around who, who were still there that, that, that could comment on the New Testament. And they could have at any time refuted what it said, these letters were passed around frequently. They could have said, no, that's not true. That never happened. I lived there. It wasn't like that. But they didn't. So the Bible passes that internal test. Psalm 119, 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Test number two. 
This one, first one's internal. This one's going to be the external test. What does the external test want to question? Well, it, what do the sources outside of the Bible say about the Bible? In other words, do non-biblical sources say anything about it? Do they confirm it? Do they confirm biblical stories or do they say, well, you know what, that stuff's really not true. This is a popular myth or, or something like that. Well, first of all, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the historicity of Jesus Christ is incredibly well established. You can read all sorts of non-biblical writings about Jesus. You can read from Roman writers or from Greek writers or even from Jewish writers where people affirm the life of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but first century historian Josephus, he wrote about Jesus. He wrote about John the Baptist. He wrote about James, the brother of Jesus. And he wrote about all sorts of other leaders that we're going to meet as, as we read through the book of Acts. So we got outside people saying that these things happen, that they recognize these places in there. Um, historical, uh, other people uh, affirming the stories that are within the Bible, but they can only affirm so much of what was in the Bible. So what about archaeology? And truthfully, for years, the Bible critics um, discredited the Bible because they said it just, there's not enough archaeological discovery that supports enough of Scripture. And in, in many cases, they had a valid argument. We just couldn't find it. But in the 20th century, with all sorts of archaeological finds, these claims to discredit the Bible, they, they've been reversed. But here's the, here's the absolute truth of this, this part here. While we cannot accurately say that archaeology completely proves the authority of the Bible, it is fair to say that archaeology, archaeological evidence has provided external confirmations for literally hundreds of biblical statements. Over and over and over again, we are finding that the archaeological discoveries confirm the truth of what Scripture says. So, there's a rabbi, his name is Nelson Gluick, and he is the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary, and one of the great archaeologists of all time. He was in it up to his elbows, and he said this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And that's very, very good news when you're putting the Bible to the external test. Psalm 18, 30. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Test number three. It's called the bibliographic test. And it might give you flashbacks to some of those late nights that you spent essay writing or doing your research papers. But the bibliographic test is trying to ask the question or answer the question, what about the original documents? How well do they translate to today? What about those original manuscripts? How, 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 do we, how do we feel about them right now? So, for example, um, there's only one original manuscript, right? I mean, that just makes sense. There's an original manuscript, and then after that, people make copies of them. So sometimes they'd make a ton of copies. Um, sometimes they wouldn't make very many copies at all. And to deal with Old Testament stuff, we don't have a whole lot of that. But what they did, their process is amazing. The detail that they would focus on is, is just unbelievable. They would actually count up, go through the whole Old Testament, and find what the central letter was. And then when they, when they put the manuscript together, they, they, it had to be in the center. 
It had to be the center of the entire book. So after the whole manuscript was complete, they go back through and they find any little mistake, anything, anywhere in the book, destroy the whole manuscript. Well, in, in the Old Testament times, there are very few copies now for us to have available because they had a very rigorous plan of care and maintenance. And they would be ceremonially burned when they got old. They'd be destroyed if there were imperfections in them. They, they would take care to make sure there was nothing left that was aging around. So because of this, for many centuries, the most reliable and well-respected Hebrew manuscript that we had was known as the Masoretic Text. And here's the amazing part. There's a story in the year 70 AD. You remember this story. This is the Jewish war. Romans were attacking the Jewish people. The Romans were uh, trying to destroy their culture and especially that pesky religious heritage of theirs. And so they wiped out the temple. But the Jewish people took their scrolls and they put them in bottles, hid them away somewhere, most likely in caves. And for 1,800 years, these historic writings, these biblical scrolls, remained completely hidden. No one knew they existed. And then in 1947, this Bedouin shepherd stumbles upon some old bottles, and inside he found what has become now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And archaeologists then went to 11 other places, found 11 other sources of these ancient scrolls. And what's amazing is that when you compare the text inside the Dead Sea Scrolls to that Masoretic text that we were looking at before, the accuracy between them is actually unbelievable. It's amazing. Even over so many centuries. Did you hear that just last month, there was additional scraps, new scraps from Dead Sea Scrolls that were just discovered in Israel? That stuff's cool, right? It's still happening right now. Well, let's wrestle with the question about how accurate are biblical copies. So you can go check it out for yourself. Not right now, but there's a website that you can go to that gives you the ability to look at a handwritten mid-fourth century complete copy of the New Testament that has survived in bound form for all these years. It's called the Codex Synacticus. That's pretty cool if you ask me. It's because what year we're in, what, like the 21st century now, and that's the 4th century, that's 17th century, 1700 years old. That stuff kind of freaks me out. So let's compare how does the Bible stand up to some other historical writings. So for example, in high school or maybe in college or maybe just for fun, you were asked to read the Odyssey or the Iliad by Homer. The Iliad is the famous story about the ancient Greek Trojan War starring Achilles. And the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus making his um, tenure journey, fighting mythical creatures, return from that battle. It uh, features Calypso, Circe, Greek god Zeus, Poseidon, the deadly sirens, a sea monster, and a cyclops. These stories are mega famous, and odds are pretty good that you've heard at least parts of them, even if they've been brought to life in other stories. These are the famous epic poems. Well, the Iliad by Homer is a non-biblical historical writing. It is the most um, trusted one around. So being that, how many copies of the Iliad do you think that we have lying around? 643, you're right. 643 copies of the Iliad. In, in ancient stuff, that's considered just a ton. Other famous historical writings like Plato's Republic has seven copies. Aristotle, there's five. Caesar has 10. So definitely the most accepted non-biblical historical writing would unquestionably be the writing of Homer with 643. How many copies do you think we have of the New Testament? Well, it's not 643. And it's not 1,000. 
but over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. When you compare that against any other ancient historical writing, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Bible is unique. It stands alone and unquestionably passes the bibliographic test with flying colors. Isaiah 40, 8. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, how many of you used to like going to see a movie? Or I guess you could watch them even at home. Um, do you like guessing or predicting what's going to happen? I do. I do sometimes to Cheryl's aggravation. You know, he, he's the one. He did it, right? No, she did it. And then, I, you know, sometimes I think the rest of you, you're just like, you don't know what's going on. You don't want to predict. You're not even paying attention. And you're, you know, maybe the clueless ones, right? People I know who are like this, and they go, oh, yeah, who's that guy? Where did he come from? What, what movie are we watching? Right? And, But I love the predictions, right? And so when I read Scripture, and one of the most things that amazes me is to see the Old Testament predictions. So sometimes we call these predictions prophecies. Prophets in the Old Testament were way more about challenging the king and the people to follow God. That was the mission. But in the midst of their other work, sometimes they also reveal this future-looking prophecy. And honestly, this is a massive rabbit trail to go down, especially right around now. There's so much prophecy that's been in the news, but we're going to hold back, all right, from that today, just going to focus. Think about the hundreds and hundreds of years ago. These Old Testament prophets, they, 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 would, they would prophesy, they would speak, they would predict what would take place either in New Testament times or even centuries later in modern times. And people would, would say, this is going to happen, and then it actually would. I want you for, for just a couple of moments, I want to show you some of the prophecies concerning Jesus. But first, that was my teaser, you know, so you got to stick around. Uh, I want to tell you this. Uh, there is a professor named Peter Stoner. So imagine being called Stoner for your entire life and being a professor. Like, how do you even trust this guy? But anyway, this professor, he took 12 of his classes with 600 students, and they wanted to see the likelihood of some of the dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled. So, for example, it was prophesied that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, right? So, about the time of Jesus' birth, they found out what was the population of the world. And so they said, what are the odds of a person being born in Bethlehem? And then they put a number on it. I don't know how they do that. That's their business, not mine. When they did this, they did it now for eight prophecies. There's dozens of prophecies, but they just chose eight concerning Jesus. And they put numbers on them, and they turn their numbers in to a kind of a group of people. I didn't even know a place like this existed, but it's kind of a governing board of statistics. And they gave their, you know, stamp of approval. These statistics are accurate, and they are acceptable. And so they took eight of them, eight of the prophecies about Jesus, and they put them together, and they said, what are the odds of these eight specific things happening to one person? And the odds were just one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it, okay? That would be the chance of these eight prophecies, just eight of them, of the dozens being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So that's one in 10 with 17 zeros after it. So what's after a, a, a trillion? Yeah, there is a right answer, but I'm going to call it Jillian because Jillian's more fun. Uh, let's say it's a Jillian. So what's the likelihood of that? 
When, when you love math as much as I do, this is really easy for me. So imagine a new denomination of dollar bill that just came from the mint, and they made it. It's one with 15 zeros after it. So that's like one jillion dollars. Now imagine you had 10 of those, right? That's huge. That didn't help. All right, so um, what I want to do now is give you a visual. Imagine taking a toonie like this, putting an X on the toonie, big X, and then just dropping it somewhere in Ontario, anywhere. It could be around Windsor or Ottawa, North Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, Campus Casing, Timmins, Smith Falls, Owen Sound, anywhere you want in Ontario, right? It's on a field, it's in a highway, anywhere at all. And then we, we, we dump a depth of one foot of toonies over the entire province, whole province of Ontario covered in one foot of toonies. There's one coin in there that has an X on it. And you'd need to find that buried underneath a foot of toonies, covering the whole province. So we blindfold one guy. We say, go out there and find it. You can wander, you can walk anywhere you want for days or for weeks or for months, years if you want to, all over Ontario. When you think that you might be there, reach down, blindfolded, through the one foot of coins, pull up the right one. The chances of finding that right coin would be about the same as these eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I want to show you a few of them. And uh, I want you to feel the, the power that's in this. Uh, feel kind of that emotion that's there. Pay careful attention to the words that were prophesied hundreds of years before it actually became true in the life of Jesus. So let's look at a few of those prophecies that God fulfilled in the life of Christ. It was prophesied in Isaiah 7:14 that Jesus would be born of a virgin. You've heard this. The virgin will be with child and the, gave birth to a son. Matthew 1:25, it was fulfilled. Micah 5:2 prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Fulfilled. Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Isaiah 1:12, that Jesus would be anointed by the Spirit, fulfilled in Matthew 3:16. Zechariah 9.9, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. John 12, 14 and 15, it was so. Psalm 41.9 said Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. Even my close friend whom I trusted has lifted his heel against me. And in the 26th chapter of Matthew, verses 48 and 49, that prophecy was fulfilled. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Isaiah 53, 7, Jesus would be silent before his accusers, and in the New Testament, Matthew 27, 12, showed this prophecy to come true. Isaiah 50, verse 8, that Jesus would be one day beaten and spat upon. Matthew 26, 67, showed this horrible prophecy coming true. Concerning Jesus, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen said that they would one day cast lots for his clothing. And in John 19, 23, 24, it was fulfilled. So follow along. See if you can remember some of these prophecies that came true in the life of Jesus. Crucified with criminals, given vinegar to drink, forsaken by God, pierced for our sins. His bones wouldn't be broken. The day turns dark. Psalm 118, 17 and 18 showed that one day he would rise again. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, 
but he has not given me over to death. And then Mark 16, 6 to 8 shows that's exactly what he did. What if we wanted to change the world? What one thing could we do that would move that idea forward? If we could just agree and do this, just, just one thing, what would that thing be that would best help to change the world? What if it was all of us reading God's Word regularly? And not just reading it, but doing what it says, letting it come to life in us, letting ourselves be changed and transformed by it. Because if we would do that, then I believe all kinds of things would happen emanating out from us. We would be godly people. We would be full of the joy of God. We would be generous and not, not so prone to hold on to these worthless material things of this world. We would be prayerful. We would be mission-minded. If we truly valued and honored and were transformed by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, change the world. We've looked at some facts about the Bible. We've looked at some tests for the Bible. We've looked at some prophecies that actually came true. And all of these things, we've just hit the very, very edge. There's way more information about all of them. But I want to show you now some prophecies from God's Word that have yet to be fulfilled. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 17. After that, we who are still alive, we are, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire on his head. There are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. The battle that we're talking about has yet to begin. So where did the blood come from? Whose blood is involved before the battle starts? Jesus' own blood. The blood that he shed to save us. That's the, the blood spilled in this battle. His blood for you. His blood for me. For all who call on him as Savior. 14, the armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, not an iron fist. He treads the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked up and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. 
11, all the angels were standing around the throne and, and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. 12, saying amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.